You are listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Eric McNulty, Associate Director of the Program for Healthcare Negotiation and Conflict Resolution. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, June 11th. Uh, Eric, do you have any opening remarks? Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for, for joining the call. Um, just in addition, I'm also Associate Director of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, and so I'm involved with uh, lots of leaders in high-stakes situations and happy to comment. And I think we're in uh, rather turbulent times, which for better or worse is, uh, keeps us very busy, and my colleagues and I are very busy uh, because so much is going on. So I'm interested in your questions and happy to respond. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Do All right, uh, looks like first question. Thanks for doing this. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about leadership during this crisis. What has your impression been of uh, leadership at different levels? Um, and I have a follow-up to that, but I wanted to get your impression from this first. Hey, it's been really interesting to observe it because I think we, you have a, a situation which most people would have expected strong leadership at the federal level with states and localities then following uh, that, that guidance. And here we have one where there was a decision for a uh, less assertive federal leadership role and leaving a lot of things to the states and to cities as well as to private organizations to, to make their way forward. Um, I think we've seen a number of states do a really good job. Um, I think you know, Governor DeWan in Ohio is an obvious choice. I think Charlie Baker here in Massachusetts also did a, a reasonably good job of being clear of letting people understand what the problem is, where you're going, how you're going to get there, and being reliable, consistent sources of information. Uh, I think, again, locally, I don't have quite as much visibility, uh, but I think we've seen a, a number of cities step up and, and do things. And this is all complicated, of course, by the protests we have seen over the last couple of weeks, um, where you have people both wanting to let protesters express their First Amendment rights while still uh, worrying about coronavirus spread. And that's been a really uh, difficult dance to, to, to uh, for, I think, for folks to, to work their way through. But I think we've seen um, a, a number of mayors, and the mayor in, in D.C. I think has done a very good job as well of saying, here's what I'm going to worry about, no matter what I'm told from above. Here's how I'm going to lead my people and my constituents through this. Do you see any um, permanent changes in the power dynamic that might stem from this? Um, uh, I mean, President Trump clearly uh, seems to favor a strong federal government, at least in his public stance, but by sort of devolving responsibility to the states, you know, do you see that, that um, in, in any way uh, being part of a longer term shift affecting this and possibly other areas? Well, I think, again, if you, if you pull back from government and look more broadly, you're seeing more distributed models of leadership taking hold in, in lots of situations, more collaborative leadership. Um, that is not what we're seeing now coming out of Washington, certainly. And I think you have this, this very interesting dynamic with the current administration of, yes, as you say, on the one hand, they favor a very strong federal government and a very strong role for the president, um, yet also a desire to to not be stuck with consequences from some of the fallout from what's happening right now, be it COVID or the protests. Um, I think a lot will happen, and I think a lot's going to depend on what, who the, the next, who's in the next administration, whether this becomes a, a longer-term trend or not. I think um, 
you are going to see if states, states and cities make it through this without a strong federal role, they are going to remain more assertive. But again, you see the shift so much issue to issue. There, there are issues around which our public administration loves uh, to give the states lots of leeway and other ones where they don't. And Democrats are the same way. It's different issues, but there are times they want to let the states do what they want to do because it's going to advance their policy agenda. And other times they want to mandate what they're going to do because it advances their policy agenda. But I do think you're going to see some states and, and cities remain more assertive because they'll see that they've been able to do it. They'll build those muscles and, and feel confident in doing it. Very good. Thank you. Eric, I had a question too. So uh, one of the things that we were talking about is states and the federal government uh, and how they are, uh, have very different roles in this, uh, in this emergency situation as opposed to in previous times. Because more uh, leadership has been given to the states, are there different groups of states working together that you've seen before? Uh, one of the concerns has been that if Massachusetts has very strict uh, social distancing rules and then our neighbors do not, then that could affect the spread of the disease throughout our state. Are you seeing different um, groups of, or leadership coming together differently at the state level than in previous? I think you definitely are seeing some regional initiatives uh, emerge. We certainly have one here in New England. There's one in the Midwest. Because um, again, I think governors are used to having to get stuff done and they uh, would tend to be more, a bit more practical than uh, some other officials. And so they, yes, they realize that if, if they do one thing and the neighboring states do something else, people travel across those borders all the time. And it's, it's, it's gonna be hard for either one of the, any of the states involved to be effective unless they work together. And we saw the beginning of this in some response to climate change, where you saw some regional packs and, and around things like power, power grid and uh, power production and, and emissions and those kind of things. And so I think it's a there's a real hunger for uh, consistency and clarity that comes from the, from the general public. I think it comes from mayors and governors and where they're not getting it from above, I think they're, they're moving to create it themselves. And, uh, and again, that's probably not, that's probably a good thing for us long-term in that you get, you see when these uh, regional PACs come together, they involve uh, Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and so people are working across the aisles, figuring out how do we solve the problem, not just how do I score political points. Thank you. Uh, another question. It, you know, going along the same line, I think it's very interesting, the sort of the power dynamic we have uh, here in the, in the country. And, you know, it's so complex and sort of untangling it. Do you see the potential for um, additional challenges should a, uh, should a, a, a new administration come in? uh in the fall be elected in in the fall and then you know they they prefer a a different power dynamic with the states where the states may say hey you know we got this you know we, we've been doing it on our own you know you guys keep your hands off yeah i i think you may although again it's gonna be very interesting to see what transpires transpires in the fall in terms of the disease the, the virus itself and is the second wave the same worse better than we saw in the first wave um, I think you will see, if, it, if it's a Biden administration, you'll see a rapid shift to try and coordinate federally and support states. And I think if, if states are getting what they want, um, they'll be happy with that. Um, and I think the states have been crying out most for, for some guidance here, want that stronger federal hand. The states that want to stay open, they will resist it. And that's, somewhat, that's a predictable surprise right now. Um, 
I, I think what's what's gonna be really interesting is the transition period. And this is, you know, always watch <clears throat> administration transitions. Because if it's a second Trump administration, you're still gonna have the departure of a lot of people. That just, that just happens after four years. Uh, and so you're gonna have a lot of new people being brought into the system, have to get some confirmed by the Senate. And so you always have a bit of a slowdown and a bit of paralysis then. If it's a Biden administration, it'll be very interesting to see what happens in the period between November and January. Uh, you may recall that the well-documented uh, incoming Trump administration was not that interested in the transition plan or, or being able to take a handoff in a very systematic way from the Obama administration. Um, my guess is they're not gonna be willing to give one to a Biden administration either. Um, and so I think you're gonna see, it's an opportunity anyway to see uh, more confusion uh, and more, more uh, requirement that states and cities step up and, and take the lead because they won't be getting it from the federal government. Interesting. And from what epidemiologists are saying, that has the potential to be occurring right at a time where a second surge might be happening. Exactly, which is why it's really fraught. And this is where, you know, as someone who studies conflict resolution and negotiation, there are sort of, you know, one of the instruments we use, I won't go into detail to be too much, but there are sort of five basic styles of conflict. There's competing, which is what we see when people go head to head. There's avoiding when people want to make it go away, which we've also seen as part of the devolving things to the states. Um, accommodating, compromising, and then collaborating, which is where you're trying to grow that pie and really solve the problem and come up with new solutions. Where we need to be right now is in that collaborative space because we are trying to both dial down a public health threat and dial up the economy. And that takes a lot of really careful ca uh, calibration, requires consistency from officials, cooperation from from citizens and businesses. And so doing that kind of very fine-tuned maneuver of trying to control both of these, these incidents as it were that are happening simultaneously and doing it during an election season and a transition of some sort in Washington, um, it really calls for that collaboration. And I think that um, the current administration tends to, their natural comfort zone tends to be competing. They wanna win which is certainly is, is emphasized during an election season. Uh, and then avoiding, you know, I, I think the president, when he doesn't think he can win, he waves a, waves a big stick and then doesn't do anything with it. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out because we've, if we don't get to that collaborative space, I think we're gonna have a really hard time managing the different dynamics of this crisis. Thank you. Um, Eric, I'm going to ask a question that has come up a couple of times, and if this is outside of your area, feel free to let me know. Um, so one of the things that's coming up, a very large event at the national level, well, and also at the state and local levels, are the elections and voting. And I have heard some re requests that come into my inbox about how how these this could go forward during a pandemic. And do you have any insights into how we could have voting uh, during a time of possible physical distancing, and also if there would be any way to make the process easier. Um, yes, this is a bit outside of my area, but I'll, I'll venture in anyway. Uh, <laughs> Thank I, you. I, I think I know enough to cause trouble. Um, and I think that, um, th again, this is where a place where we really need to be in that collaborative space, because you would think that people on both sides would, would say, the more civic engagement, the better. We want a safe, fair, free election with as few problems as possible. You would think we could agree upon that. Um, there is not agreement on that apparently because some people think that if you do more, uh, 
mail voting or, or absentee ballots that you're going to have greater fraud. Uh, and it's not much, there's no evidence for that necessarily, but that's the position they're taking. I think they're afraid of more votes means the greater chance the other side will win. But I think this this is a reckoning moment. We, I mean, our our election system has been stuck in an old model for a long time. Our initial foray into greater technology, uh, I don't think was particularly well thought through. Uh, and we've seen lots of problems with it. But now is an opportunity, we're running out of time very quickly, to recalibrate and say, how do we do this in ways that um, allow us to take advantage of all the things we know how to do? We are able to move trillions of dollars every hour around the globe electronically. Somehow we can't move votes using some version of that uh, with passwords and encryption and fingerprint technology and all of that that we have in our, our smartphones. Uh, and then the basic old fashioned one I say of, of mail-in mail -in voting, which is very expensive for, for the localities who have to administer it, it's much more complex. Um, but again, there are, I think there are ways to do that. And what we need to come to the fore, although I'm not sure we're going to see it, is um, people from both sides saying, this is a shared problem, let's solve it so we all can say, no matter what happens, it's safe and secure. And gee, wouldn't everybody feel better if we had 80% of the eligible voters voting instead of 49%? Wouldn't that be a clearer indication of what the people actually are looking for moving forward? And the corollary to that story, which I, don't, I have not seen covered very much, is the, the president's apparent desire to move the Republican convention from Charlotte to somewhere else. Jacksonville seems to be the primary candidate right now. Um, that's interesting to us in part because it's what's known as a national special security event, an NSSE, which means the Secret Service is in charge of safety and security. Um, the Secret Service is not large enough to do that job, so they rely a lot on collaboration and coordination with state and local officials wherever they happen to go. And the planning for those starts pretty much as soon as a, a city is picked. It's a really long process to make sure the event comes off well. And so when you shift it, and, and now move it and, gi and give the, the organizers only a few months to do what had previously taken more than a year. Um, it's really, really difficult. And, and the, again, the chances of something going not quite right, um, be that from a protest point of view, be it from any other kind of security threat, um, it's, the risk is much, much higher. And I think that's going to give a lot of discomfort to the people who work hard in a nonpartisan way to try and make sure that both conventions come off as, as well as they can. Do you have any other thoughts about how the conventions could be run during a pandemic or um, should they just be done electronically all on Zoom or do you have any other thoughts on how, how they could go forward? Yeah, you know, I think- I was gonna say, you know, or if they should. Yeah, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm not sure they should. Um, and, and let, you know, I'm a bit of a political junkie. So I watch the conventions and I enjoy seeing that and, you know, on both sides. Um, I think the party business that happens um, could easily happen elsewhere. Uh, you could find other ways to get that done. Um, you do want to give your candidate a rousing send off and, and, and uh, fire up the base. Um, but so much of this now is produced for television anyway. Um, I think you could do it. And I think, you know, for the most part, we all would understand uh, why there wasn't a live audience or wasn't much of a live audience uh, because of the times we're in. Look at how many. Um, television programs where we, they used to be in front of a live audience are not anymore. Um, so there's not quite the rah-rah excitement. 
but then again, the, 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 the things that get watched, the big speeches, uh, those kind of things are already produced, produced primarily for television. They ought to just go on and, and say that's the kind of production it's going to be, I, in my view, um, and make the best of that shift and don't try and uh, do it halfway and, <clears throat> and try and, you know, kind of create a hybrid model here. I would sort of say, let's get the party business done electronically. Let's produce a great show, probably a shorter show for television that highlights our party leaders, our candidate, our platform, uh, and produce it in a way. And you're probably going to do a lot more distribution over social media and other channels like that. And, and think of ways that you're creating little showlets, as it were. Um, that just seems to make a lot more sense because I think that the conventions are a holdover from a very different political era. Um, and I think the, the folks who go have a lot of fun. Um, but I don't think people are going to have as much fun now if they have to be six feet apart and they can't go to parties and all the rest of that. Okay, thank you. Did you have any other thoughts, anything else that's been coming into your inbox that you think uh, people should know about? Uh, any questions that have been coming up frequently? Um, yes, and then somewhat of a, uh, a totally different vein than what we've been talking about right here. Um, having a number of conversations around how we, how we manage this transition to the next normal. And we've, we've been looking at them through these sort of arcs of time uh, model that we use that shows you know, not a single smooth path from the beginning of this virus till we got it under control, but actually a fairly bumpy path that can go better or worse depending on the policy choices, policy choices people make. And I've been getting questions from, from the private sector saying, what do we do when we're not getting clear guidance from, from government? That, and again, you think of, it's great that governors and mayors do a decent job, but if you're an organization like one of the big tech companies that has offices in six or seven states or more and multiple countries, and now you're trying to find, you know, this is where the decentralized model of guidance, guidance really breaks down, is how do you be compliant with all of that um, because you're trying to do different things in different places. Um, we had a, a conversation with people in the aviation in industry recently, and they were, they were worried about what if the standards are different in the state where a plane takes off from where they land? And could you have passengers who actually are not allowed off a plane once it lands or are unexpectedly required to quarantine? This is where you really need that consistency and clarity nationwide and ideally across uh, the major nations or where business happens and where people travel. And so it's, it's a real conundrum right now of, of how do you do this in a way that actually makes sense and helps people solve the problems they're facing. And so, um, you know, I think, I think what you're gonna see emerging out of that are uh, more industries and cross industry sectors that, that work in complementary spaces, convening and finding pre-competitive pre places where they can talk and try and create the consistency because they're not getting the guidance from the government. And that's a very different model. We have seen bits of that around uh, some environmental compliance and, and uh, labor requirements where companies have found, let's say, a pre-competitive space to create common standards. I think you're going to see much more of that now. Um, and it's going to become a sort of an alternative, right, could become a, an alternative regulatory framework, which will be very, very interesting to see how, that, how well that goes, how much the public trusts it, what government reaction to that is. Um, but you have, again, pe people and organizations trying to move forward right now and, and saying, we, we can't wait. If you guys aren't going to tell us what you want us to do, we're going to have to try and make it up and figure it out. Eric, do you have any other final words before we end the call? Just the last thing is the, uh, 
the, the transition to online, full online learning is going to be really interesting. We've been seeing it now uh, and conducting exec ed courses online. And um, it's really an interest, interesting dynamic. And it'll be interesting to see how uh, the matriculating students adapt to that. Um, but a really envi interesting environment, an interesting way to teach. And, um, you know, again, that's a bit off our topic today. But I think it's, it's really, really interesting. And we, uh, as we've started to do it, I found a lot of really engaging aspects of being able to do things this way versus having to be in a classroom, uh, even though there are drawbacks to it. So with that, thank you all. This concludes the June 11th press conference.